Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we take a deep dive into some of the greatest creatures in our oceans. Now whales can do a lot of things. They can dive to unimaginable depths, hunting for squid, but they're also going to look out for things like sonar and how they can steer them off course and still manage to churn out pop hits that can spread cross continents. This week we find out a lot about the great work that whales are doing in our oceans. The ocean is a pretty impressive place and when you think about it, Getting to the bottom of the ocean is no easy feat. Now, we know that the ocean has canyons and giant crevasses, which can go all the way down 10,000 metres in the case of Challenger Deep, the very large trench in the ocean that James Cameron visited all the way back in 2012. And that's pretty impressive. But this was only achieved through the use of special diving apparatus, something that could sustain such incredibly deep oceans the high amounts of pressure and the stress that it performs on your body in particular your lungs and your blood so how do other creatures manage to survive at such incredible depths and one of the big important challenges for all these creatures is of course surviving that crushing crushing pressure now we do know that some creatures are perfectly adept at living at the bottom of the ocean in fact they've evolved solely to live there but for those that travel between the top of the ocean and all the way down to its depths, you need to be particularly special. And that's where the whales are really the masters of this beautifully evolved genetic system, which enables them to dive incredibly deeply. Now, they can do it without the aid of a special submarine like James Camp. For example, the sperm whale, which hunts giant squid in some of the deepest parts of the ocean can regularly dive for long periods of time, like for 45 minutes, to depths of around 1,000 metres, sometimes even hours longer below that 1,200 metre, which is incredible to think about. That's 1.2 kilometres beneath the surface of the ocean. These creatures have dived down from the surface all the way down to that deep depth to hunt some of the most elusive and scary creatures of the oceans, like giant squid. But they're not the deepest diving mammals out there, ignoring humans because we do it by cheating with mechanical apparatus. No, the deepest diving mammals are in fact the beaked whales, and they can plunge to incredible depths, over 2,250 metres. Way back in 2014, scientists tracked the Cuvier's beaked whale all the way down to 2,992 metres in a dive that lasted for 2 hours and 17 minutes, which is incredible to think about. That's almost 3 kilometres beneath the surface of the ocean. And when you think about it, that's a huge amount of pressure to be able to deal with, to be able to have your lungs survive such enormous stress and then make the journey all the way up is an incredible achievement in physiology. But what exactly is going on? How they managed to hold their breath for hours upon end and dive so incredibly deep and have their bodies be squished. Now, recent research published by a Duke University-led study has actually now given us a detailed record of over 5,926 dives of these Cuvier beak whales. They track them 
over a long period of time to try and figure out how on earth they're managing to achieve such great feats. And what kind of dives are they achieving? Is there a type of variety in their dives as well? And a lot of this work was done by using whales tagged with limpet satellite link tagged to 11 of these different whales that live in and around the Cape Hatteras region in North Carolina. And they recorded over 3,200 hours of behavioural data from over almost 6,000 dives between 2014 and 2016. Now, we know that they were able to make some incredibly deep dives, but we also got to find out some pretty interesting things about them. What the researchers were most interested to looking at, including Jean Shearer, a doctoral student at Duke University. Now, as Dr. Shearer states, their deep dives average about 1,400 metres and last about an hour while they're feeding near the sea floor. And then they typically only spend two minutes at the surface between dives. So they can go down to such deep depths, be there for heaps of time, and then only come up to get a breath for two to three minutes before diving back to these incredible depths again. And what the data from this analysis showed is that the dives are normally come in clusters. Basically, they'll do a really, really deep dive to 1,200 metres, basically to the bottom, and they'll stay there for a long period of time, about an hour. They'll come up briefly for only a couple of minutes, but then they'll do three to four very shallow dives to around 300 metres. Now, that is still an incredible feat to think about, but it explains some of their recovery behaviour. They're not just doing continual deep dives with no time in between. They're doing one big deep dive and then a few shallower dives and then again one big deep dive. But it's still pushing the limits of what a mammalian physiology can accomplish. They've held their breath for an extended period of time and gone through immense stress on their bodies to cope. Now, these are fascinating animals, but as Dr. Shearer states, they're the world's deepest mammalian divers, but we don't yet understand how they dive to such extremes. But the results that her and her colleagues have published in the Royal Society Open Science Journal in February outlines at least a way forward, a collection of data to validate just how deep and how frequently these whales are diving to enormous depths. Some great work coming out of Duke University. pop music or music from different cultures? Do you try and sample music from the latest artists around your area? Or sometimes do you cast your listening much further afield to tune into the latest sensations coming out of Korea? Or maybe you're tuned to an underground scene in Seattle. Either way, you probably have a pretty diverse music taste. But nevertheless, sometimes ideas or themes get stuck in your head and you'll find yourself repeating them, humming them along, and that's the sign of a true pop hit. The same thing can be said about lots of other types of culture. This idea of memes, things that spread as part of a culture across regions across the world and just keep repeating and repeating in slightly different forms. Now, we're not the only creatures who are capable of achieving such feats. A new research just published in the Royal Society Open Science Journal by the authors Melinda Redekai, Carissa D. King, Tim Collins, and Howard Rosenbach, who've been all working through the Wildlife Conservation Society, along with Ellen Garland from University of St. Andrews, Gabrielle Caldwell of WCS, Stony Brook University, 
and Yvette Razadfin Dracotto of COSAP and Madagascar National Parks have been studying, immersing themselves in the latest musical trends and fads from two completely different areas of the world, one around the South Atlantic, the other all the way across in the Indian Ocean. And they've been analysing hours upon hours of songs over a five-year period to try and get a feel for the way in which humpback whale culture emerges, changes, and spreads all the way across the world. They have been analysing the songs of incredibly different humpback whale populations from entirely geographically separated parts of the world in the southern hemisphere and what they found is incredibly astonishing now what they found is that what can happen is that songs little snippets of these whale songs can spread all the way from one population group in the indian ocean to one in the south atlantic and this happens out of contact between different members of that population group. Singing the song. They'll hear the song and they'll repeat phrases, snippets of it. And this was published as a, in a paper called Culturally Transmitted Song Exchange Between Humpback Whales. And it's a pretty incredible thing to think about. Now, it's been noted before that song sharing does tend to happen between populations in the Northern Hemisphere. And it happens for a number of reasons, because they're very close proximity to each other. The breeding grounds and the seasonal feeding areas of lots of different types of whale pods or groups in the northern hemisphere is actually incredibly close. But in the southern hemisphere, they are really, really far apart. The southern Atlantic and the Indian Ocean are incredibly diverse regions, and the songs have to travel a very, very long way. But travel, they do. They actually can analyse different types of whale songs from basically the two different sides of the African continent. One from a groups of whales near the coast of Gabon and Madagascar, and one all the way across on the other side, in regions around Madagascar. And when they transcribed 1,500 individual sounds that were recorded over a five-year period and analysed them using statistical methods, they actually found some pretty interesting ideas. Now, Male humpback whales are pretty complicated singers. They make compositions, which consists of moans, cries, and other vocalizations, and they're all broken up into things they call song units. Song units are then composed into much larger phrases, which are then repeated to form themes. And different themes are produced to form a song cycle that is then repeated over the hours or even days. Put it another way, think about it like a verse being grouped together in different orders to form a theme, maybe a song, and then this is put into an album, and that album is played on loop or maybe played in different orders. But what is interesting is that all males within the same population can sometimes end up singing the same song type. And this population-wide song is sort of maintained but it can lead to sometimes a seasonal hit song sweeping across the population group. Starts off in one area, but soon it spreads and you'll be able to hear lots and lots of variations and copies of the same bass song. And over time, the researchers basically were able to detect shared phrases and themes in both populations. Now, with sometimes, a song would really spread quite quickly and it would spread to all the population groups really, really quickly. But other times, it would take some time to spread or wouldn't spread as far. Basically, some mega hits went platinum 
on both sides of Africa, whilst others would only go platinum in, in the region around it, with some moderate success elsewhere. But other times you'd actually see variation, with a hit song from Gabon, version of Theme 1, which is consisted of a cry whoop. But the whales in Madagascar, they split Theme 1 into two parts, a descending cry followed by the separate whoop or trumpet noise. So they took the same song, but gave it their own flair. And this song evolution and cultural spread happens over a very long period of time. Over the five years, they saw a lot of movement and change and different ideas backwards and forwards. And it's incredible because though we know and have known since the 1960s that whales were able to sing amazing songs, this is the first time we've seen just how far their songs can spread across an area that is massively geographically separated by the continent of Africa in the way. So this is some great research being led by the Wildlife Conservation Society to show just how alike we are to whales and how they have their own unique culture with its own pop hits and trends. Now, whales fill our ocean with lots of beautiful songs. But as we've spoken about many times here on this podcast before, the ocean is also full of a lot of noise, especially when you consider all of the noise generated by commercial shipping, which dumps a whole bunch of loud, noisy motors churning up the waters, crisscrossing the globe continually, which can cause some consternation to whales, can cloud or muddle the songs for communication between these humpback whales, for example. But what's more dangerous for whales than just the drum of commercial shipping is Navy sonar. Now, sonar works by sending out high-frequency and low-frequency pulses of sound and waiting to hear what comes back. The bounce-back reflection is used to assess the presence of objects underneath the water. It's great for imaging the bottom of the ocean, and it's great for hunting for enemy submarines or ships, but it is not great for the whales. And for decades, the US Navy has used high-powered sonar during typical anti-submarine training and testing exercises, and they do it in a bunch of different locations across the world, including the San Nicolas Basin of Southern California. Now, beaked whales and other deep-diving whales are particularly sensitive to these kind of military-grade sonars, which has led to actually some incidents of mass stranding events, after which the Navy and legal action from environmental activists forced the Navy to modify their training activities and to create sonar-free areas. They've spent more than a decade and tens of million dollars trying to find ways to reduce the harm to big whales and other mammals. But new research led by Brandon South of the University of California Santa Cruz and Kelly Benault Bird of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Center has dived into the task of understanding where these whales are. For example, in some of these Navy test ranges, and some of the areas where the Navy has designated them as sonar-free, i.e. safe for whales to hang out in, are the whales actually going to stick to these Navy-defined areas, or are they going to be hit still by the ricochet? And to do this, the researchers equipped an underwater robot with echo sounders to measure the abundance, density, and size of something very, very particular, the presence of deep-sea squids. And the reason why they were looking for the deep-sea squids inside this Navy test range is to use them as basically an indication of where the whales would end up. 
Because you see, beaked whales have a very intensive caloric diet. As researcher Kelly Bennett Bird puts it, beaked whales work very hard to obtain their food. They are essentially living paycheck to paycheck, which is very different to a larger whale like a baleen type whale, which has significant fat and energy reserved. Beaked whales don't. They don't have that kind of body mass. And they spend a lot of energy to dive deeply in the first place to hunt for the squids. And that means that hunt has to be fruitful. Otherwise, it's dire consequences for the beaked whales. So they have to work really hard, expend a lot more calories, and dive super deep to hunt the squid. Which means they're very, very picky about the areas in which they hunt. So the Navy actually designated these certain areas sonar-free. They tried their best to identify which areas would be the most likely to have whale habitats. But they didn't, because they weren't able to gather that level of information, assess the amount of squid inside the region. But what the researchers have found is that the squid were 10 times more abundant in the area preferred by the whales. The whale could basically dive once a day and get all the food and energy it needs. But that unfortunately was inside the typical sonar testing range. Now, in a nearby area, which when the testing was underway, the beaked whales actually retreat to and hide out in to avoid this deadly sound, there was a lot less squid. The whales would actually need to make between 22 and 100 dives a day just to get enough food to survive. And that's nearly impossible because that means each of those dives has to be incredibly fruitful. And it just goes to show that whilst we can make plans to try and limit our impact and keep out of creatures' way, unless we understand the full picture of what they're after, we could designate them a zone and say, look, you have a bit of ocean, that part's safe, you can hang out there. They may, but they might not be giving them enough that they need to survive. So some great research recently published in conjunction Monterey Bay University and University of California Santa Cruz, which just goes to show the importance of doing a thorough analysis of an ecosystem, not just one or two factors. If we want to protect our whales from things like sonar and designate sonar-free areas, we, we need to also consider the presence of prey and food sources. And this is just as important for areas like the Navy, who are trying to designate areas to be sonar-free, but it would just but it would have the same benefit for people trying to assess the impact of drilling a new oil rig or designing a new shipping lane. The use of drones to try and assess the levels of prey is a great innovation and that was recently published in the Journal of Applied Ecology. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From churning out cross-cultural pop hits to dodging out of the way of whales and diving deep, we found out some of the amazing skills of whales. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.